this final session is really about a summing up and a look to the future. What has it all meant and what does it mean for uh, future work? And uh, I'm delighted to uh, be joined in, in this task by Dr. Alison Evans, uh, who is the head of the Overseas Development Institute based in London. Uh, Alison will start off by drawing out some key themes that have emerged over the last couple of days, and I will uh, then speak briefly uh, about uh, what I think some of the, the issues ahead uh, might be. So, Alison, without further ado, I'll hand over to you. Thank you very much. Um, well, it's a great chance to be to asked to sort of try and wrap up some of the discussions we've had over these last two days, although I'm debating with myself whether it's a privilege or a curse, because, you know, you can always get these things terribly wrong and everybody's sitting around thinking, was I in the same meeting as you were for the last two days? But anyway, I shall uh, give it a bit of a go. Um, I'm not, you know... Uh, forgive me now because I'm really not going to try and uh, give a verbatim account of everything that's been said and contrib contributed but I just thought I'd try and pull a few thoughts together that maybe string some of it together at least as I, I see it um, and I suppose I want to start where we started at the beginning of yesterday uh, and reminding us a little bit about the context within which we are thinking about the challenge of accelerating progress towards achievement of the MDGs. And that context has been spelt out for us in a number of different ways uh, in, in the opening session. Um, and I think a number of, feature that of uh, features of that context are really important. Uh, not least the fact that, as I said in the lunchtime debate, you know, the, the, the kind of global economy is in a different place today than it was in 2000. Um, the regional and the global public policy caseload, if you like, is somewhat of a different order uh, in 2010 than it was in 2000. Um, it's been said that globalization is in a long crisis. That might be a somewhat overstatement, but there are certainly concerns that there are systemic and overlapping challenges uh, food, fuel, stroke energy, finance, climate, that are, you know, have, have kind of changed the, some of the rules of the game about how we think about development. Uh, and we have to take those into account when we're thinking about this next five years plus, potentially, of MDG achievement. But in this changing landscape, the MDGs have been one of the few fixed points, actually. And I think what we've heard over these two days is just how important that has been uh, given uh, the, the, the rising global risks uh, and challenges that the world economy now um, poses us with. And I think there's, been, there's quite an appetite for keeping those MDGs as key fixed points uh, despite the recognised importance of sort of different starting points different capacities for change, different rates of progress towards them, nevertheless, as a kind of guiding star, they continue to be important. And I think that's an important message. Um, Helen Clark reminded us um, right at the beginning that uh, things are being achieved. They have been achieved. And whether or not we go as far as to agree with Mark Sussman that 
the last 10 years have seen more achievement compared to any other decade. I think that might, you know, Jenny might have something to say about that. I think there, over a 40-year period, we might want to say progress has been really quite remarkable. Um, and we need to keep that firm, firmly in mind. But at the same time, we've been talking lots about diversity in that progress, unevenness, heterogeneity, both between achievement, sorry, with achievement between the goals as well as within them. Um, and we've been talking about non-linearity of progress, and that's come up quite a lot, I think, over these two days. Perhaps what's interesting is that we, we, we've been talking about non-linearity with some surprise, but actually development's never linear. Um, not throughout, you know, all time has there been ever a truly linear process of rising prosperity and shared prosperity. And I think perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that progress around the MDGs is nonlinear. Um, I think we just need to get on and make something of that rather than perhaps uh, spending too much time uh, bemoaning the fact that, you know, development is bumpy, lumpy, difficult, um, and we need to keep uh, focused on, on the ends. Um, I think also, as, as, as Vikram noted early on, we also need to embrace the fact that it's not only nonlinear, but at times it's also spatially unbalanced. And in and of itself, that may not be a bad thing. Again, we needn't be overly surprised by that. We may be somewhat disappointed, but I don't think history would suggest anything else, actually. But the reality is we have very high hopes for the MDGs, and I think that's right. I mean, we, the way we interpret them within the international community is that you know, no one goal trumps another goal. <coughs> they can be seen as separable, but also seen together. And somehow we regard them as being somewhat invulnerable to changing circumstances, and that's perhaps one of the things that uh, I have a biggest problem with, is that, that uh, we do need to account take account of the fact that the, the, the context is shifting around us. We use the MDGs a bit as code for development. Um, that's no bad thing, but I think also what we've heard of the last two days is that there are also things missing, and we need to keep those in view as well. And I think you know, Jenny Klugman's uh, initial presentation reminded us there are things outside of the MDG framework that also matter, matter hugely for human development performance, including um, inequality, empowerment, uh, uh, human security, and of course, growth as well. So let me just quickly uh, move on to a few other reflections. I mean, it seems to me that the question of how achievable do we think the MDGs are, uh, as it were, between now and 2015, comes down in part to what we think our model of change is. And I thought I'd just reflect a little bit on some of the things that have been mentioned over the last two days in terms of drivers of change, and then reflect a little bit on some of the things that have been said about what might make change happen faster. Some of the drivers, very quickly, well, growth, obviously, and in East Asia, uh, I think we've heard and Asia-specific, that, that, that a major feature of growth has been around economic integration. Um, big driver. Urbanization, uh, and linked to that, uh, demographic change changes. Uh, this region is interesting in the sense that it both has the phenomena of aging populations uh, at the same time as the phenomena of, of, a, of a youth <laughs> uh, bulge, and I think that's an interesting 
driver of change. Um, of course, the global trends that I outlined at the beginning and the overlapping crises that now affecting the global economy, not just the regional economy. Um, vertical and horizontal inequalities, both as a, a driver and as an outcome. Um, uh, vertical in the income sense and horizontal in the in the, in the gender, ethnic, and in other senses, and those seem to be pretty important. Another key driver of change is the whole governance leadership nexus and the nature of the social compact between states and citizens. Again, very important for, for, for driving, driving progressive change, at least. And then, of course, the changing patterns of development financing, new donors, new actors, different forms of South-South cooperation, and new forms of collective action and a certain amount of frustration aired here over the last two days about how that isn't happening fast enough and effectively enough. Um, I've said to uh, Michael and others that if um, we were having this discussion in Europe right now, um, a huge part of the agenda would be about the role of China, not so much as a neighbor, but as a financier. Um, and also of the other emerging market economies. Uh, there's a big discussion going on at the moment in Europe about the influence, the positive and not so positive potentially impact of, of new emerging donors uh, in particularly development in Africa, but not exclusively. Um, we haven't talked perhaps as much about that here, although of course China is part of this region. I think it's, it's interesting to reflect that that's also another potential driver of, of change. So what have we been talking about in terms of what works and innovative strategies? Um, and I thought I would just quickly talk about this in terms of, well, what's innovation? Well, innovation is partly about doing things better, and it's also about partly doing things differently. So I thought I'd very quickly, and I noticed my battery's running out on my laptop, so I need to speak quickly. Um, in terms of doing things better, there are some things that have come up repeatedly for me. Um, we need to do better around taking equity seriously. Um, and I think that's just come up time and time again. That, uh, Sir Richard Jolly, who um, some of you will have heard of and know and has been responsible for writing some up the intellectual history of the UN up, uh, recently had said, inequality has come in from the cold but not into policy. And I think there is something about that. I think we don't yet have a good sense of if we're taking equity seriously, how does public policy look differently uh, in the context of development? And I think that's a big issue. Some of the things that have come up here, it's not just about the rate of growth, it's about the structure of growth, and it's also about a variety of economic and social policy measures needed to address inequality, everything from addressing specific kinds of market failure to supporting labor mobility to progressive tax regimes and so forth. Another thing about doing things better, we need to be better at engaging people, community engagement, engaging people as active citizens. That's been a message that's come up quite a lot. Another area of doing things better, governance, finding and supporting institutions that work for and in the interests of poor people. And also this idea that Vikram put out of spatially blind institutions, uh, better models of leadership, I think these are a whole host of issues that have come up in different forms through the two days. Doing better, it's also about access, access to markets, finance, information, and technology. And finally, we need to do better around development partnerships. Development partnerships in 
the traditional sense, in the Paris Accra sense, but also in you know, what is a rapidly changing set of actors and thinking differently about creative partnerships, doing things together better, ta tackling the problem of weak feedback loops and problems of proliferation. What about doing things differently? And these are the last few comments I'll make. Well, you know, there's always a search for the new, and sometimes maybe we need to be a bit cautious about looking for the new when sometimes we just need to do the old a bit better. But there are several things that have come up and they seem very interesting. You know, this whole power of lever the role of the private sector in leveraging technology, finance, and entrepreneurship, the new business models, there is something in all of that, no question about it. For me, the most interesting piece, aside from the mobilization of resources, is about trying to address this issue of accountability, of feedback, of the transparency of what we're trying to do here. And that, to me, seems to be very powerful. The power for technology of helping us to work across borders, of getting to scale quickly. I mean, I was very struck in the session this morning that, you know, in the traditional kind of aid business, we spend a lot of time worrying about getting to scale, whereas the private sector just does it with a flick of a switch. We've got a lot to learn there. Networked development, I think, is a very interesting concept, and it's a way of us beginning to think about our engagement of development is not only being about finance, but it's about, it's about the network infrastructure that brings knowledge and resources and people together uh, to support development. And again, I think technology is part of that, but it's also, it's also a mindset. Doing things differently, moving from aid policy to development policy, the beyond aid agenda. And I think that's big. I know you're going to say something about that too, Michael. But what is the future for aid of crowding in good policy in other respects? Um, crowding in other resources. Um, and the importance of thinking about a whole range of development policy instruments and not just about the power of aid and aid policy. And finally, the importance of policy experiments. One thing that struck me um, again this morning uh, in the discussion around uh, with some of our private sector partners was this term, the notion of, of creative disruption, which is an interesting concept, it seems to me. But it seems to me that's not a concept that is exclusive to the private sector. You know, some of the greatest uh, uh, innovations, as it were, that have supported development and, and improvements in living standards have been through public policy experiments supported by creative leadership and a disruption of old ways of doing business. And I think we have to remind ourselves that that continues to be a very powerful role for public policy to innovate and to experiment. And it isn't just the preserve of the private sector. So my final word is, well, David Ferguson, if he's in the room, you know, avoid blind squirrels, absolutely, at all cost. Whatever we do, public or private, make it repeatable and scalable. I'll remember the blind squirrel for a while. And above all, for me, also avoid magic bullets. Um, they haven't served us well in the past. Let's not go and search for new ones. There's lots and lots of lessons on the table which we can build on, and I think the two days have been really useful for pulling those things together. Uh, I'm quite optimistic about, about that. Um, over to you. Well, thanks very much, Alison. Um, 
We all find ourselves in the weird situation where the last speaker today is the person in the room who knows le the least about development and aid. So uh, just bear with me. I've learned an enormous amount over the past couple of days. I've found it incredibly stimulating. And I've, I've, I've listened to the conversation very much uh, with the ears of a person who uh, runs an international policy think tank in Australia. And I've listened to all of the conversations thinking, well, what is it that the Lowy Institute uh, can draw out of these discussions? What, is it, what are the policy ideas? What are the agenda-setting issues? What are the debates that we need to foster in the years ahead to get this country and, you know, um, thinking megalomaniacally, uh, the rest of the world, thinking about the right things in the years ahead? So what I've done is to go through and pick out really six issues that, um, that I think uh, we, we at the Lowy Institute need to think um, carefully about, that we'll be thinking carefully about as we develop up the report that we present to the Australian government from this conference and that can p perhaps start to feed into the, the Pacific Islands Forum uh, meeting and uh, possibly even the MDG's uh, rev review conference in September. The first of these um, was brought up by several speakers and I think it's a really profound uh, insight and that is that uh, a lot of our, uh, a lot of the discussion in September in New York, a lot of the discussion in Vanuatu is going to be thinking about 2015 and how do we get to 2015. But uh, a, a number of people have said we need to start thinking seriously about post-2015. What happens when we get to 2015 and, and have the meeting and think about how well we've done or how badly we've done in relation to the MDGs and what does it mean for the years ahead? What will be the next agenda? And I think it's important for us to all start thinking carefully about what we start doing now, what we start thinking about now, what we start debating now to get ready for that post-2015 agenda. It's not going to be easy. We're, there's going to be a lot of headspace that's filled up with thinking about how do we get to 2015 and how do we present the best possible report card, how do we collect the best possible data to, to, uh, to support that report card. But I do think we need to start devoting some headspace to the post-2015 agenda. The second set of issues I think uh, that is important is how do we build and sustain a constituency, both in uh, donor countries and in, and in uh, development partners for development, for the types of development that we're, um, that, that we're proposing, the, the types of development uh, that we are starting to uh, move to, to, uh, towards? I think, as always, uh, in building public constituencies, there is a delicate balance to be achieved between uh, uh, sustaining inspiration and interest, giving people something to believe in, giving them big goals that fire their imagination, but making those goals achievable and not letting people down, not making the goals so big and so, uh, so far-reaching that they will uh, result in uh, a letdown at the end. And that's always a delicate political task. Uh, 
Related to this, I think, is that we need to build uh, and promote understanding in this country and I think in a lot of other countries that development is about much more than charity. I think that's the predominant view of development uh, in this country uh, and in a lot of countries. But development, I think, is about much more than charity. It was interesting, Alison mentioned uh, the absence of the China debate, and, and it's true. We, we have really not mentioned China very much, despite the fact that at the Lowy Institute we've done quite a bit of research on China's aid in the Pacific. And the really interesting thing about the Chinese is that they don't call their development assistance aid or development assistance. They call it partnerships. And the Chinese are really unabashed about saying... Uh, our partnerships have to have something in it for us. There has to be a, an interest in it for China, just as there's an interest in it for uh, China's partner or uh, country. And so I think we do need to start broadening the discussion about development past uh, the, the kind of charity mindset. And this leads me to my third point, and that is that we need to... Uh, particularly in this country, but not only in this country, realise that there are key geostrategic uh, reasons and interests in promoting development in the Pacific, in Asia and in other parts of the world. There is a vital and reciprocal relationship between stability and development, and we need to keep that very much in mind. One of the things that particularly interested me was... Uh, that a number of people mentioned the importance of access to energy for development. Now, this is the first time I've heard this, and I found this very, very interesting. I've done a, a little bit of work in my time on, I guess you'd call it the geostrategic big picture about energy security, but the conversations that have occurred in this room suggest that energy security actually makes sense at an individual level, at a development level as well. And suddenly it started to uh, set off all of these connections in my mind that a lot of these issues from the very top geostrategic level down to the regional level, down to the community level and ultimately to the individual level are connected. This is, the, I guess, the new form of globalisation that's starting to open up. And we haven't really started to understand the interconnections yet. We tend to look at things in a, in a, in a vertically uh, differentiated way and we need to start making those connections. And I think that is a very exciting research agenda and debate agenda in the years ahead. My fourth um, uh, area of interest, I guess, uh, and opportunity is in the realm of transformative technologies. And Alison's already talked about this. But I think there's a key insight that, um, that we've, that, that we've realised in recent years, particularly with the advance of the communications revolution. And that is to realise that the truly transformational technologies are not those such as, you know, the atomic, the atomic age or the space age, technologies that require the backing of huge governments and corporations and, and investment machines and benefit huge governments and corporations and investment machines. But they're those technologies that uh, decisively change individual human possibilities, individual human 
capacities for sociability, individual human attitudes. And I think three of those have been mentioned time and again in this room over the past couple of days. Uh, the internet and mobile phones, microcredit and microinsurance, and access to energy, water, sanitation. All of these provide um, access to information for individuals, to education for individuals, to opportunities for individuals. They also provide, as a number of people said, that instant feedback loop between donors and recipients of assistance. But I think in the conversation that we had outside this room just before the coffee break, Alison made a very good point, and that is that we also need to, to guard about, against being too starry-eyed about these possibilities. Um, one of my favourite authors, Clay Shirky, says that after every technology revolution, there is an intense period of social experimentation with that technology. And I think we're going through one of those intense periods of social experimentation with the new media technologies, and perhaps with microcredit and microinsurance as well. Some of, some of these technologies will be profoundly transformational, and I guess others will not be that, that we seem to, th to, to invest a great deal of hope in. My fifth point is, I guess, an integration agenda, realising that um, there is a micro-aid agenda that is, is starting to build up around these transformational technologies, but we need to think carefully about how the macro-aid aid agenda can fit in with this this new micro-aid agenda. How can macro-aid, the, the big picture, big infrastructure development uh, uh, opportunities and, 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 and uh, projects that are sponsored by the Asian Development Bank, the World Bank, the, uh, I mean, new, new aid donors like China, how can they be used to leverage uh, the micro-aid micro uh, agenda? Um, uh, to steal one of Alison's points, we need to also um, relate this to the harmonisation agenda, the Paris Declaration agenda, and start also thinking about a post-harmonisation agenda. What are the new forms of harmonisation that the new frontiers of development are, are starting to open up? And finally, my final point is that, and it, and it relates to the point that Alison made, um, the need to go beyond the aid agenda towards a development agenda. And that is to think about broadening um, our engagement for development between uh, donor countries and, and, um, and their partners. That the aid and the development agenda needs to be more, more than about just aid, aid agencies and aid NGOs. That there are a much broader um, uh, array of government agencies of, um, of civil society organisations, of private companies that need to be engaged in the development process, that, that the development agenda needs to advance on a very, very broad front and engage as, as many parts of government and civil society as possible. So they're just my very brief points. Um, I'm not committing the Lowy Institute to advance on all of these issues, but I certainly think that we'll have a great deal of interest in these issues in the years ahead. Perhaps there are partnerships that we can, that we can form with organisations such as ODI and others in this room. Uh, we are keen on collaborative research and, 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 and 
raising public awareness and public debate about these issues. So I think I might leave it there, Alison, and, um, and open the floor up. We've got 10 minutes um, to observations from the floor. Uh, have we missed things out? Have we misinterpreted things? Uh, is, are there other things that we haven't thought of that we need to start putting on the agenda uh, before we wrap up today? So uh, I'll turn it over to the floor. Richard Curtin, one comment that uh, I picked up from Peter Baxter's uh, introduction at the beginning was his floating of the idea of a new pact around aid or uh, development issues. Uh, are there any thoughts on that after two days? Can I, can I open that, that challenge up to um, the floor? A new pact on development issues. What might be... Um, part of that new pact? What needs to be considered? Do we need a new pact? I think that fits in very well with <clears throat> excuse me, um, the last point made by both uh, Alison and, and Michael about looking beyond aid and looking beyond uh, um, uh, how we actually define these new partnerships for development, which I think is critical, and, and looking at moving, as Alison said, from the, the aid policy debate to the, to the development policy debate. I also think it, it may also be one of the most challenging things or, or threatening things for a lot of us in this room. That's our industry, if you like. It is an industry that, that we're, we're talking about opening up. But I think over the last two days, the inclusion of, uh, of the private sector and different voices has been incredibly stimulating um, and incredibly relevant. And I think any new pact clearly needs to be uh, much more inclusive. But I would also add that uh, maybe one thing that in looking at a new pact, and it's a point uh, that was raised in, in, in many of the um, discussions, uh, is including the voices of um, the constituents, the people that we're in this game for. Just say something on that too. Um, one of the things that we're doing um, a fair amount of work on in ODI at the moment is is sort of looking at the G20 processes, and of course the. G20 is the new game in town, as it were, in terms of, of leading on a whole number of aspects of financial coordination, economic coordination, and so forth. And one of the things that we've been pressing for, as it were, through the research that we've been doing, is as part of this sort of think, rethinking the pact, is that the G20 economies themselves need to be thinking about their own policy stance vis-a-vis low-income countries. So it's not only about what the G20 can do in terms of mobilizing resources, to the extent that they feel they have any particular obligation there, but crucially also what the G20 is doing in terms of the policy frameworks within G20 countries as they relate to low-income countries. And this is a crucial part of the um, the, sort of the, the pact, as it were, the, the new pact around growth and development, um, which is not only led from the aid industry, if you like, or how many resources can we mobilise, but crucially, a bit more as, as David Rubin and others, the, the, the bigger policy framework as it relates to opportunities in low-income countries to prosper. Um, Michael, I take your point about the importance of thinking about beyond 2015, but I'd also caution us not to take our eyes off the amount of work that needs to be done between now and then. Um, and I, know, I, I know that's not what you meant in your comments, but I think, it, I think it's very important that we, we look out to 2015 and think about the major meetings 
um, where decisions will be made about what happens to the Millennium Development Goals and how we might think about what achievement or failure might look like. Um, clearly there are major issues around what international aid architecture will look like beyond that point. Um, there's a very important meeting coming up in Seoul, the, the next um, high-level forum meeting, and it would be a shame if the things that were discussed and, the, uh, and, and, and filtered through this meeting didn't go forward in some coherent way, so that at every meeting there was another set or a reinvention of the same set of, uh, of important outcomes that we need to carry forward. So I think there's a real role to be played by all of us, um, and possibly in particular by groups like LOI and, and ODI, in keeping some cohesion and some sight on how we might track, build, form coalitions to take forward to 2015. So the discussion beyond that, well, at that meeting and beyond that, um, gets the maximum impact. Yeah, I um, just wanted to say, Michael, thank you, and, and thank you to Hall of Lowy for putting this on. It's been fantastic. I think we'd all agree. Um, uh, my question to you directly, Michael, is, um, and sorry for putting you on the spot, um, but um, fr from what you've seen over these two days, um, what do you think the Australian government and coalition should, should do in the coming, coming three or four months um, in order to further this, this agenda um, pre-September? I don't know if there are any government... Oh, yes, Alison's here. She can report back on what I say. Um, look, Tom, I th what I find curious is that both the government and the opposition have committed to the 0.5 GNI target, and yet neither of them have um, come out and explained why that's important. They've made the statement, but they haven't actually come out and justified why that is important. And what we've seen um, is that uh, there is, I think there is, in, in our polling, I think there's, there's actually substantial public support in Australia. But the Australian people need to be treated like adults. They need to be, they need a government to explain, or, and an opposition to explain to them why development is important. And it's actually not a terribly difficult argument to make in this country. Uh, arguably, there are, there are few other developed countries, uh, that, that face issues of development so close to their own borders as we do. Um, and that is why the issue of development is so central to what we do and think about at the Lowy Institute and will, will always be. But arguably, uh, you know, in, in our public discourse of, of our international affairs, we are transfixed by the rise of China, we are transfixed by the rise of India um, and, and a range of other things, uh, but somehow that development discussion hasn't made it to anywhere near the centre of our, our consideration of the world beyond our shores. So um, that's probably what I would say to the Australian government. Yeah, um, related uh, to that, I thought this um, theme of accountability came through very strongly the last couple of days, and, uh, and I, I think there probably is a, a, a role. Of course, there is from the constituencies out there, and ultimately they will vote accordingly. But uh, you were asking, and uh, what what can the Lowy Institute do? I I think there is some kind of a role you can play with your credibility uh, to 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 keep these issues on the agenda and to keep both the Australian government and through them the G20 uh, aware. Of, of their commitments, because I heard many of the speakers talk about all the promises and the words and so on, but are we going to hold uh, everybody uh, accountable for those? 
I know other burning uh, observations people want to make. Uh, it's time to, to wrap things up. Um, as I said before, this, is, this has been an incredibly uh, successful uh, experience from my point of view. Um, it's been a lot of work putting this uh, conference together, but uh, I must say that in my time at the Lowy Institute, I haven't seen a conference work in terms of its selection of speakers and participants as well as this one has from the robust discussion that happened from the very first panel all the way through to this final panel. It has been terrific, and I would like to personally thank each and every person in this room for making the time to come along, for being so honest uh, and, and broad thinking in your intellectual commitment uh, to, this, uh, to this particular event. And it certainly puts uh, a great deal of onus on, on us to make sure that this is just not another talk fest, that something actually comes out of this. I'd like to thank AusAid uh, for funding this uh, particular um, uh, conference. It was uh, AusAid uh, who has supported us strongly through putting this conference together. Uh, they have never wavered in that and we uh, acknowledge um, their support uh, in the most um, strong terms. Uh, behind this conference there was a very strong intellectual uh, leadership from a team of people uh, who I re regard in very high esteem. Uh, they were led uh, at the well. They were led by Jenny Hayward Jones, who is the director of our Maya Foundation Melanesia program. Jenny um, uh, had to uh, uh, go off and become a mother about uh, four weeks ago, uh, but she has driven this process for uh, very nearly a year, um, and uh, and I think uh, the quality of the discussions shows up. Uh, uh, shows her uh, commitment and her abilities. Uh, Jenny was assisted very, very ably by uh, a, an incredibly energetic and, 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 uh, and uh, inspirational group of people, Lisa Roberts, Daniel Cave, uh, Helen Tauro, Anne-Marie O'Keefe and Mary Fafita uh, put in a, a huge amount of work in uh, pulling together uh, the agenda and, uh, and the speakers for this conf conference. The conference wouldn't have happened without uh, Orietta Melfi, uh, Orietta, uh, our events manager who has guided the Lowy Institute through the first seven years of its operations. This is the last major conference that Orietta will organise for the Lowy Institute. She's going off uh, to pursue a glittering career in Singapore. We offer, we offer Orietta our be very best wishes uh, and wish she wasn't going, but, uh, but she is. So, so thank you to you, Orietta. And finally, I'd like to thank uh, the, the team from the Lowy interns who uh, came along and, and so ably helped us, uh, Gobi and, uh, and James. Um, and finally, ladies and gentlemen, travel safely. Thank you so much for giving us your time and for giving us your commitment here. Uh, we really do appreciate it, and, uh, and we hope that we can stay in touch with you in the years ahead. Thank you very much. This has been a recording of the Lowy Institute. For more information and other recordings, please visit the Lowy Institute website at www.lowyinstitute.org.